Okay, guys, uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 7. If you'd like to turn over there or click over there with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, it, it's hard uh, to come down from the mountain of Isaiah 6. It's such a great text. And um, Isaiah's call to ministry, uh, what likely was also his conversion. And so it's easy to, uh, uh, to feel like we're back kind of in the normality of the text, but, but we, we, we are not going to let up. Isaiah is not going to let us let up yet because as, as glorious as Isaiah 6 was and as majestic as that vision of God as we have learned in those pages, Isaiah has more to say to us. And uh, we get our feet wet today into the portions of Isaiah that talk about the coming Messiah. And if you think of Isaiah, or Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14... What comes to mind? Don't look. What comes to mind? Christmas. Now you're saying, Keith, it was 96 degrees yesterday. It's June already, and we're talking about it not cooling down till November. How can we be talking about Christmas in June? And the answer is, it's the next verse. So that's the joy of being an expositor. You don't have to figure out what you're going to teach on or preach on. You just go to the next verse. And if it happens to be Christmas in June, it's Christmas in June. So Isaiah chapter 7 gets us into uh, the portion of this particular um, section of Isaiah that introduces us to the Messiah. So we'll get to those verses in a moment. But we need to get a running start uh, the, pa- the passages that we read about the virgin being with child and calling his name Emmanuel, those verses that are familiar with, and I could probably call on any of you and you could recite it uh, from memory, at least uh, to some degree. W- we need to see the context of that. And this is where we, we, we begin to learn how important it is when we see prophecies in the Old Testament that reveal the Messiah that what we don't, we, we don't want to do two things. Number one is we don't want to bring Jesus with us and put him in the Bible in places where God did not intend him. Now, I know that sounds radical. I know you're thinking, shouldn't Jesus be in all our Bible reading? That sound, it almost sounds wrong to say we shouldn't put Jesus in the Bible. I know. Okay, you can, you can you know, write hate mail later on if you want to. But this is so important. What the Bible is, is the revealed will of God. And what our job is, is to read it and understand it, answering this one question. What did God mean? What did he mean? That's what we're, tra- that's what we're trying to do when we read and interpret the Bible. That's what Dave and Cece are teaching on Wednesday night. Shameless plug. If you're not in the class, it's not too late, right? They can still come. They had a great turnout. So show up on Wednesday night if you want to learn how to do this some more. But that's the, that, that's the question. What did God mean? And if God didn't mean to make an explicit reference to Jesus, well, then we don't want to put him there because God didn't put him there. Does that make sense? So we're going to get into all that today, and, and uh, this is going to be great. And, and I think it really will go right with what Dave and Cece are doing in our summer uh, Learn to Study the Bible class. So let's jump in uh, with both feet here, okay? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1. Now it came about, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Razin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of 
Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying, The Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. And if you woke up to that little storm rolling through Hood County, where there were wind blowing in the uh, the trees, you know exactly what we're talking about here. Now, right out of the gate, we got to see that there was a whole lot of names that came in that first verse, uh, the first couple of verses here. So let's let's remind ourselves first, just who are all these people? Now, let me let me give you a clue about Bible interpretation. Maybe Dave and Cece are going to talk to you about this too. Very often, the Bible uses different names to describe the same person. And the result is frustrated Bible readers. And that's what's happening here, okay? So I'm going to help you with this. Uh, Our youngest son, his given name is Eric. But if you saw us at his track meet yesterday... That's not what we were calling him. His name is Zippy because he, you know, he's, 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 you know, bottled lightning is, is what he is. So um, just like you have different names for your children and grandchildren, we all that, the Bible employs different terminology sometimes to describe the same person or the same place. So it's very important that you get this because otherwise you're, you're going, who is this and where is he? And okay, and we, we want to try to get through some of that. Okay, so let me just remind you, the title of the message today is Stubbornness. And the sign of the sun. And we'll see how far we get into all this because we're going to have to take a little bunny trail into interpreting messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. But that's why you're here. That's what you signed up for. So here we go. Now, first of all, let me just remind you of what's going on. Um, Can you guys see this? You want these front lights off? Mike, could you turn off the front bank of lights here for me, please? Thank you, sir. Okay. So since you guys were smart enough to do that already, I'll come over here. Um, Okay, so what's going on here? This is the area known as the Middle East. See the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, we see this little teeny tiny dotted uh, area here is what, what location is this teeny tiny little dotted area? Yeah, this is Judah, what is called the southern kingdom. Remember, Israel is divided. The nation of Israel is divided. There's a northern kingdom. There's a southern kingdom. Now, here's your first clue, okay? Sometimes the northern kingdom is called Israel. Sometimes it's called by its capital city, Samaria. Sometimes it's called Ephraim, as it's called here. Three names, same geography, same ground, okay? So remember that, write that down so that when you're reading that, you go, oh, they're talking about the northern kingdom. They're talking about the northern part of Israel, okay? So the northern part would extend up here into Samaria. Of course, the capital city of Judah, the southern kingdom is Jerusalem. So so there it is, okay? Now, what is significant... Talk to me about what's the yellow line that goes all the way around uh, that map there. What's the yellow line? That's the Assyrian Empire. And so you've got this huge, massive nation. And you see there's a couple of outlying uh, places that are not under Assyrian jurisdiction yet. But they will. There's more more news at 10 here. But you can can see how... (laughs) They're surrounded. They're literally surrounded. They've got water to west, to the west, and Assyrians to the north, to the east, and to the south. And there's nowhere to go. So this is the political uh, arena as we see it as we come to the book of Isaiah. 
Now, what's happening is, as we're reading this right now, the northern kingdom has not fully been conquered yet. That's going to happen during the course of Isaiah as we read it. So this little portion right here has not been conquered yet in chapter 7, verse 1. But that's what we're learning about. We're learning about what's going to happen that's going to lead to this northern kingdom being tanked. So you just need to remember that. That's the political season. Israel is surrounded. And, um, and, and uh, you know, Assyria is just taking over everybody. And uh, th- this, this makes um, everybody exceedingly nervous, including the king of Judah, whose name is Ahaz. And we'll talk about him in just a minute, okay? The other thing you need to remember... Okay, so th- this, this shows it a little bit easier here. It, the Assyrian Empire, and we see that before Assyria captured uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, and another area known as Aram. What is Aram? We just read that in chapter 7, verse 1. What is Aram? That's Syria. Well, why don't they just call it Syria? Well, that's the ancient name. And that's part, that's part of the reason things have multiple names in the Bible is they change names over time. Uh, can you think of any other cities or countries that have changed names over time? How about Texas, right? <laughs> Texas changed political hands, right? We were just in St. Augustine, uh, the first uh, uh, established city, right? And they, that changed political hands multiple times over the course of its history. Uh, so, yeah, you have multiple names because names change as different people control the area over time. So Aram is Syria. The capital city is Damascus. You need to know that because we're going to talk about Damascus in the text. We're going to talk about Aram. And we're going to talk about the king of Aram and the king of Israel. Well, well, who's that? That's the king of Syria, and it's the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. Okay, so you with me? That, that's, that's the geography, political, geographical update for the day. No, I didn't do so well in geography. That's why I have to put maps up on the board because it reminds me of what it's like. So with that in mind, with that political background in mind, let's go back and look at verse 1 again and let's get our, uh, get our brains around who we're talking about here again, okay? So first of all, the first character verse 1 mentions is Ahaz. Remember, he is the current king of Judah. That's the southern kingdom. There is a second person mentioned. That's Pekah. He is the current king of Israel, the northern kingdom. Now, both of these kings... Tell me about both of these kings. We, we could go back to, to Kings and Chronicles. And Kings and Chronicles, as the names imply, tell us about the kings. And there's a whole biography that goes like this. There was Joe the king. And he came to power when he was 23 years old. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Or he did what is right in the sight of the Lord. And he ruled for this many years... And he walked in the ways of his father, King David, or he didn't walk in the ways of his father, King David, and he died, and his son so-and-so took over, and he reigned, and you get that, and it's just over, and you're going, oh, this is killing me, man. But no, that's very important, because when we get to Isaiah, it's like, well, who's Ahaz? We don't know who Ahaz is. So those historic books give us background, and we'll talk about some of those in a minute. But all I want, to, all I want you to, to know right now is if we were to go back to those historic books, we would learn that both Ahaz and Pekah are not good boys. These are wicked kings that are walking in evil in the sight of the Lord, not following his laws and not with hearts uh, following his will. The third uh, gentleman here we've talked about is Razin. He is the current king of Aram or Syria. 
Okay, so so there's there's our three players right there. Now, here's the historic background to all of this, because chapter seven, verse one, just look back in your Bible here. Chapter seven, verse one says that Razim and Pekah went up to Jerusalem. That's funny. They went up, even though it's south. Uh, they went up to Jerusalem. It's, it's a Hebraic way of saying they went over there um, to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. Now, what's going on here? So let's go back to our map. So what happens here? You've got the king of Aram and the king of Israel. They join forces and they're going to come down here and try to take over Judah. Okay, so let's one more time. So we got the king of Aram, the king of Israel. They join forces and they're going to come down here and try to take over Judah. Now, why would they want to do that? I'll give you a hint. There's a hint. Why would they want to be bringing in more territory, bringing in more people, bringing more, uh, expanding their... Yes? That's right. They know it's only a matter of time before Assyria comes in and wipes them out. So they're going, who's going to help us? Who can we possibly get to help us? So they, they see Judah and they think, hey, we're going we're gonna to come together and we're going to go take over Judah. And if we can do that, that will make our, our nation stronger. And hopefully we can, we can put off uh, uh, giving in to the Assyrians a little bit longer. We, we can fight a little bit harder. Okay, So that's what they're doing. So that's what uh, chapter one, is, 7 verse 1 is talking about. So on your notes there, Aram and Israel joined forces in 734 BC to try to ward off the threat of the Assyrian invasion. And in order to do that, they attempted to bring Judah under their control, but could not. Okay, now the historic reference here, I'm gonna, let's go ahead and turn here, because we're going to reference this. Uh, just hold your place there, and let's look at the historic part behind it, the historic narrative behind this. Now, as you're doing this, I, I want you to get this. When you're reading the book of Isaiah and you're using a Bible that has cross-references in it, a lot of those cross-references are telling you, hey, there's a whole other place in your Bible that talks about this. So I would encourage you, do that. Otherwise, you're like, well, why are they invading Judah? I thought they were on the same team. What, what is this all about? Well, if you go back to 2 Kings, it tells you exactly why they're doing it. So 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 37 is where we're going to go here. And the language here is interesting because this verse comes at what's happening from the sovereign hand of God uh, as opposed to looking at it from the standpoint of human beings looking at what's going on. So are you there? You remember where Kings is in your Bible? All right. No problem. Second Kings, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 37. In those days the Lord began to send Razin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah against Judah. Okay, so we know this is this is part of like everything else, uh, the predetermined plan of God in all of this. Now look down at chapter sixteen, verse one. In the seventeenth year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, became king. Okay, so Ahaz in the southern kingdom becomes king. Um, 
when he was 20 years old, it says here, and he's going to reign for 16 years. And that happens 17 years into the reign of Pekah. Got it? You history buffs are eating this up. The rest of us are going, there's lots of names and numbers and all right. Okay, stay with me. We're going somewhere. So that tells us something about uh, when he came. Now, now here's the key, verse 2. And he, talking about Ahaz, did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God as his father David had done. Well, what did he do? But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel and even made his son pass through the fire. This was one of those horrific pagan rituals that the kings of Israel, God's kings, as they were influenced by the pagan kingdoms around them, adopted some of their practices. And you know that some of their religions, some of their gods, some of the gods that they worshipped, like Molech and Baal and others, uh, called for child sacrifices and others involved uh, bringing your very children through sacrificial rituals, which would have been exceedingly detrimental. So the Bible here would, would try to be nice about all that and not get too graphic, says that Ahaz was one of the guys that participated in all that with one of his sons. So this is, this is not just uh, you know, a theologically liberal king, right? It's not just he has his theology wrong. He is wicked and immoral in terms of how his false doctrine is getting lived out in his life uh, following horrific practices, terrible practices here. Okay, back to verse 3. According to the abominations of the nations, that's where those practices came from, whom the Lord had driven out from before the sons of Israel. Verse 4. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Now, we need to, you're going to see that little phrase, the high places, a lot at this time in history. So let's remind ourselves, what does it mean that the kings sacrificed on the high places or they, they allowed the, the high places to continue? What, what, is that, what does that refer to? They're places of pagan worship. Anybody been to Sedona, Texas? Raise your hand if you've been to Sedona, Texas. Uh, New age capital of the world, right? And if you hike in Sedona, you will see something. If you've never been there, you will see lots of weird things. One of the first things you will see that's weird is as you're just hiking and enjoying, it's a beautiful place. I went to college about an hour away from there, so we would go to Sedona regularly on the weekends and boulder hop and hike and, and, and do stuff. And a beautiful place. But as you're hiking, you'll see these like stacks of rocks. And it's the weirdest thing. The first time you see it, you go, ah, you know, some five-year-old was getting bored and, you know, he, he built a little thing. There's one there. There's another one. There. And you're walking through. And, and, and oh, those of you that have been to Sedona, what are those? What's that? Okay. And what are the, what's the significance? Okay. Okay, what's the New Age significance of those things? What's that? Getting, getting warmer. Oh, man, we need to talk about New Age theology. New, New, New Age, guys, New Age theology is probably one of the greatest threats to at least the American church today. So if you don't recognize it, it's about energy and balance and nature and, and being one with nature and all that. No, those those... 
piles of rocks are marking special energy centers as determined by new age gurus. That's what those are. And, and, and yeah, they should be navigational aids. You know, here, here's, here's our height. That's what they should be. But they have a spiritual significance. And so when you go there, you'll see people building these up and, and, um, and following them. And, and they do all sorts of things around them. But, but that's what they're saying. They're saying that is a place where the energy of the earth is particularly accessible. And that's part of New Age theology. Now, what happens in, in, in uh, the time of the Bible is they took some of the pagan practices and did the same thing. They would mark special locations where deities ought to be worshipped. Okay, different, a bit different than New Age. They're not worshipping the earth's energy. They're worshipping pagan gods, but they established these high places, these, these centers of worship on, as, as it mentions, they were, they were the elevated places. And as uh, Isaiah says here, in, or, or as uh, the writer of the Kings here says here, uh, in some cases they were under particular trees and whatnot. So what happened was, uh, during this time, the kings of Israel, when they came into power, what should they have done about the establishment of pagan religious centers all over their nation? Yeah, they should have destroyed them. And some of the good kings actually did that. And some of them actually put laws into place saying it was unlawful to worship at those centers. So that, that's the reference here, okay? Is the high places are these pagan centers of worship established in light of the pagan nations around them by wicked kings. Okay, so that gives us a little bit of background. So let's go back to Isaiah now. Okay, so that's what's going on. The Israel, uh, Syria and Israel join forces in order to, to ward off the threat of a Syrian invasion. They attempt to capture Judah to bring them under their jurisdiction to make their nation uh, stronger, but they can't do it. Okay, so chapter 7, verse 1 ends with, but they could not conquer it. Now, Look at the response of the people. So let's say you're an Israelite. You're living in the southern kingdom in Judah. Ahaz is your king. And for several months, the northern kingdom, Israel, and their next door neighbor, Syria, have come together and they are trying to conquer your land and you're fighting them off. Well, what's the response of the people? Look at chapter 7, verse 2. When it was reported to the house of David saying, the Arameans have camped in Ephraim. And we go, who on earth are they? The Arameans in Ephraim? Okay, well remember, they, there's a change of name. They don't say the Assyrians. They called them the Arameans because they're from Aram, or Aram the, the ancient name for Syria. So, so read it like this. The Syrians have camped in Ephraim. Well, where's Ephraim? Yeah, that's Israel, okay? So the southern kingdom is hearing, hey, the Syrians, the Arameans are working with the northern kingdom to come against us. And what's their response? It says, His heart and the hearts of His people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So the people of Judah shook with fear when they heard the news. Now, did you catch the reference here? There's a really odd reference. When it was reported to the house of David. Do you see that there? What is the house of David? Okay, it, it, it is referencing Judah, but it's got a technical significance. The house of David. Who, who was David, first of all? Just to remind ourselves, who, who's David? He's the king of Israel, and he is, 
He wasn't the first king of Israel, but he was the most significant. Why? What, what did David receive during his reign that sets up the rest of history? The Davidic covenant. That's right. And the Davidic covenant connected the line of the kings coming from the nation of Israel to who? To the Messiah, to Jesus. So, so watch it. Right out of the gate. We're not even into verse 14 yet where the virgin will be with child. But Isaiah is already setting the table for a messianic discussion. Because he brings up the house of David. And the house of David references the kings that connect back to David and connect on the other side to Jesus ultimately. Do you see that? So, so he, he's setting us up. He's letting us know, hey, we're going to have a little messianic conversation here. So get ready. Now, Dave Hubbard is right because when he references here the house of David, notice this, it was reported to the house of David saying the Arameans have camped in his heart, camped in Ephraim, his heart, the heart of what? The heart of the house of David. We're not talking about just a dynasty here. We're talking about the current king of Judah. So the house of David here is another way of referencing King Ahaz, because he's in that line of Davidic kings stretching from David to the Messiah. Now, this is significant. Why would God, through Isaiah, want to call the current king Ahaz by this odd title that underscores the fact that he's in the Davidic line going to the Messiah? Why would he want to do that? Now, now think before you answer, because there, there's a really good reason here, but you've got to kind of put it together in your mind. So why would he want to do that? Okay, correct. Yeah, so the, so the northern king, the northern uh, kingdom king, Pekah, is not in that line. Okay, so to make a distinction, okay, that, that's true. That's right. It's a reminder of God's plan and covenant. That's right. And tell me about Ahaz again. Where was he at with this whole God's plan thing? How was he doing in that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Brian is absolutely right. He was a bad dude. I like how you put that. Um, speaking my language here. Um, he was a bad dude. In terms of his heart, in terms of his agenda, that's what we saw in Second Kings. But you'd think, and I appreciate what Brian said, you'd think that Ahaz would say, wait a minute, I'm in this Davidic line. I'm a part of the Davidic covenant as it's unfolding. And what did God promise in Second Samuel 7 about the kings in the Davidic line? What did he promise? You're looking at me like, I have no idea, Keith. I don't know the Davidic covenant... This, see, this is why, this is why we've got to get all this. There's a lot coming together in these verses, okay? So, so stay with me. What did the Davidic covenant promise? There would always be a king on the throne of David until the Messiah. Now put this together. Ahaz is having a panic attack. Why? Because the king of Israel has joined with the king of Syria to come against him, and he thinks, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man because they're going to defeat me. And if they don't defeat me, the Assyrians are going to defeat me. So, right? He, listen, he has lost sight of who he is. He has forgotten the covenant promises of God. 
Now, l- let, me, let me make an application here at this point. None of us are in the Davidic line. None of us are going to be the kings of Israel. But let me ask you this. Have you ever been overwhelmed with fear simply because you have forgotten the promises of God to you? Have you? Right? Have you ever lost sight of God's agenda because you have forgotten what God has said is true about you? Uh, I just just read a a wonderful Paul Tripp quote. I can't remember where it came from. But but he said something like this. When you... And he's he's applying it to, to Christianity now, okay? When you forget who you are in Christ you stop pursuing the things that you have in Christ. Right? And do you see how relevant this is? And and, and we're we're talking a different millennia, we're talking a different context, even a different covenant, but it is absolutely the same, isn't it? We react the exact... When we forget the promises of God, when we forget who God has told us that we are, We go through all sorts of drama and turmoil that we don't have to. And so Isaiah, in a very kind and somewhat indirect way, elbows Ahaz and says, have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten the line of kings that you're in? Have you forgotten the covenant of God that you are indestructible? Until God's plan is accomplished. And, and as a footnote, um, this isn't licensed to go jump out in front of a truck. But do you understand that, that no one can touch you if you're in Jesus? You do God's agenda and you are indestructible till God says, okay, his mission is done. Isn't that amazing? So don't fear. Don't be afraid. Walk in the promises of God. Have a confidence in who God says you are and in the agenda He has set. Until the day says, until the day comes that God says, "Okay, your mission is done." Christians are indestructible. But if you're like me, there's a lot of turmoil that happens because I don't live in light of my identity as often as I need to. Okay, back to the text. So. Ahaz is scared, and this little reference on your notes there, the house of David refers to the kingly line of David personified in Ahaz, meaning it's a reference to Ahaz in this particular text. 2 Samuel 7 ensured the success and safety of the kings to the Messiah, but Ahaz has acted wickedly thus far, okay? So what's going to happen? God's going to dispatch Isaiah. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz. This is great. I love this. I love this. You go and take your boy with you. I think it's great to see the prophet of God taking one of his sons with him to ministry. Right? And you may not be a prophet of God. You may not be a pastor or missionary. But include your kids in what you do in ministry. That's just a footnote for parents and grandparents here. Now, we know that this was particularly told by God. God told him to take his son, but I think it's a good principle nonetheless. Now, um, anybody 
uh, know somebody who's pregnant, going to have a baby, any, you know, any grandbabies on their way, grandparents here, okay, right? Yeah. If you're looking for names, here's a good one. Shi'ar Yashub. Shi'ar Yashub. The J has a Y sound in Hebrew. We, we would say, uh, as it gets anglicized, Jashub. But Shi'ar Jashub. Isn't that a great name? I mean, I mean, call, call your daughter-in-law right now and just tell her. I've got, I've got the thing here. So, Okay. So he sends Isaiah... He says, take your son, Shear Yashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And that's like saying, you know, go to the fourth light and 377, turn right at the Tommies. And right. We have no idea what this reference is because it's so far. ago. But, but back in the day, they knew exactly the geographic location here. It was specific to the town. Uh, take care. <laughs> Did you do this in your evangelism training this last week? Take care and be calm. Right. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Razin and Aram and the son of uh, the son of Ramaliah. Okay, so so here's the picture. God says, Isaiah, take your boy, go to Ahaz, and here's what I want you to tell him. Tell him this. Take care, be calm, have no fear, do not be faint-hearted. That, that's four ways, four different ways of saying, would you chill out, calm down? It's going to be okay. You know, when, when, Hebrews, when Hebrew writers want to stress something, they don't get loud they get long. They multiply their words. And so that's what he's doing here. He's saying the same thing four different ways. Calm down. It's going to be okay, man. Now, now notice, what does he call the two kings that are coming against him and just try to, you know, invade his country and kill everybody? <laughs> uh, remember when it was cold, like a lot of months ago? Now you don't remember when it's cold because it was 96 yesterday. You know, and, and you've had the fire in the evening and... Uh, you know, you're ready to go to bed, and it's kind of been you to die out, and you got those just little smoldering particles of what used to be oak wood in your fireplace. It just kind of, and you're not thinking, man, a raging inferno. You're thinking, yeah, it's about to die. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, that's what these two kings are like. They're on their way out. They're they're smoldering. There's no fire. There's no energy there. There's there's just smoldering. They're they're on their way. To destruction. Don't worry. Now look what he says. Because Aram, uh, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it, and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, and set up the son of uh, Tabel as the king. Here's another name you need to know. Tabel as the king. See, the, these other two kings had already handpicked the new king for the southern kingdom once they took over. And Ahaz is hearing this. They've already, they've already planned my successor. Ah. Isaiah says, calm down. It's going to be okay. Okay, let's, let's catch up in the notes here. Isaiah takes his son. Here's what his son's name means. A remnant shall return. If you were a prophet of God, the first thing that God did was he took the baby name book from you. Right? 
if you were going to sign up or be appointed, or better, you were called to be a prophet of God, you did not have jurisdiction over what you even named your kids. Because oftentimes God would say, um, you're going to call your kid not my people, and uh, you're going to call my kid not merciful. Okay, I was thinking maybe John or Emily, or right? Because the names even of the sons of the prophets, listen very closely. The names, even of the sons of the prophets, had a role in the agenda of God in the life of the prophet. Now, a footnote on that. Um, I don't think God has done that for any of us that I'm aware of. And none of us are prophets, so that, that doesn't work anyway. But what does that tell you about how we ought to think about the personal parts of our freedom as they relate to the ministry that God calls us to have. I don't want to name him Lo Amin. I want to name him John, right? That's what you think. And God says, you're mine. You're working for me. And so I, I, think, I think there's an application here just to think that there are probably areas of our life that we think we have freedom over that need to be brought under the submissive plan of the ministry God has called us to have. Does that make sense? Anyway, okay, back to the text. So his son is named a remnant shall return. Why, does, why is that his name? Yeah. What was one of the main points of Isaiah's message? Judgment is coming. You're going to be destroyed. But, what? There'll be a remnant. And there'll be a restoration. And and you can imagine, is this for the people? Or is this for Mr. Isaiah and his dear wife, Mrs. Isaiah? Can you imagine if your whole ministry, your whole life was wrapped up in going out every day and telling your people that bad things are going to happen? And remember last week? Isaiah said, you know, God God calls Isaiah and God says, great, here's your message. You're going to go out and preach to a people that will not listen to you. Oh, great, God. Well, how long is that going to last? Until the whole place is annihilated. Do you think you might be prone to depression as the prophet of God if if that was your ministry? To go out every day and preach to a people that would not listen, that judgment was coming? That in your lifetime you knew that you would see the destruction of your people and of your country? I think the main reason that God ordained for Isaiah to name his kid this is not so much for the nation, but for Mr. and Mrs. Isaiah, who probably needed some encouragement that that their whole ministry would be characterized by a, a ministry of judgment to a stubborn people who would not listen. A remnant would remain. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So here's his message, okay? Look at your notes there. Don't be afraid of the two kings and their plan. They will not succeed. Notice this. Within 65 years, Ephraim, which is another reference to Israel, will be destroyed. And this is the year Assyrian, the, uh, the, the reference to 65 years, which you see there in verse 8, okay? For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Razim. Now, in another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people, What Isaiah is saying is, within 65 years, this place is not going to exist. 
well, what's going to happen within 65 years? Well, within a couple of years, Assyria is going to invade and take over both Israel, the northern kingdom, and uh, Damascus, Assyria, uh, Amman, that region. But the 65-year reference is to the fact that by 65 years, not only will Assyrians have invaded, but they will have imported so many foreign settlers into Israel, there's no possibility of a return. So they really did annihilate the place and make restoration absolutely impossible in the nation of Israel. And then the last thing Isaiah says is this, verse 9. If you will not believe, the same will happen to you. You surely will not last. Now I want you to see this. On the front end of Isaiah's speech to Ahaz, he says, remember the promises of God. You are the house of David right now. You are the current active king in the Davidic line. You are the current active king in the Davidic covenant. Remember that. Act like it. Repent. Start doing what you ought to do. On the front end, there's a lot of encouragement, isn't there? On the back end, what does he say? If you do not do what I'm telling you to do right now, you're going to die, and that's going to be the end of you. You see that? So that's his message. That's the setup. Now, now the table is set with those messianic references for these famous verses. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now, now if you ever do an ad, how many have done Advent readings in our church, Advent time? Remember the Advent wreath and the reading you did? And you will read this, okay? So next time you get selected to do that, you will know more about what's going on. That's, that's the context now. Then the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Isn't that interesting? God says, in his kindness and mercy and grace, I'm willing to prove it to you. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'm willing to prove it to you. If you won't take my word, I'm willing to, to do some shock and awe business to demonstrate that I, I'm shooting straight with you here. Now, we know that sometimes God in his kindness gives signs to people who don't really need signs. They just need to obey what they've been told. Who's the poster child for that that act? Gideon, sure, right? Gideon, it's going to be okay. Well, how do I know that that I can trust you, God? And how do I know? And then the whole fleece thing, and and then he does the the miracle of the fleece. Well, um, maybe if we flip it over and try it again, right? And and, and that you guys understand, putting out a fleece is not a model of decision making to follow. Because he's disobeying the voice of God. He's saying, God, I don't believe you. And that the whole fleece thing is not a model of decision making. It's an example of God's mercy on a disobedient prophet who should have taken God at his word. Okay, And that's what's going on here. But God in his mercy and kindness and grace says, I'm, I'm willing to work with you here. I'm willing to help you to see that this is really the case. So he says, ask for a sign. Ask for whatever you want. And Ahaz does the false humility thing. Did you, did you catch this? Look, look what he says. Um, verse 12, but Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Now, can you think of a time where there was somebody who wanted a sign to happen and it really was putting the Lord God to the test? Can you think of a time where that, that happened? Abraham. 
You've got to think New Testament now. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, those are good. I didn't think of those. This is the, the guess which example Pastor Keith is thinking game. Um, I was thinking of the devil and Jesus in Matthew 4. Throw yourself down. The angels will catch you. And Jesus says, but it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? And obviously that was a case where it would have been wrong for Jesus to do that. But, but can, I just, can I just make a small exegetical point here? You're not testing God to ask for a sign if God commands you to ask for a sign. <laughs> right? You're not testing God if God tells you to do it. So why does Ahaz respond like that? He's already made up his mind. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. Um, Don't we do this too? Someone asks you something, or maybe God tells you something in His inspired Word, and we make up excuses, sometimes spiritually sounding excuses like, I'm not going to test God. We make up spiritual excuses because our mind is already made up. Not a good thing to do. Not a good thing to do. So, God says, okay, if that's the way you like it, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing to you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Ahaz had jeopardized the future of the people and now he is in direct rebellion to God using spiritually sounding excuses to avoid clear obedience. Now what's that? What, what What did God just tell Ahaz? That's a threat, isn't it? It's a threat. So his starts with grace, remember? Remember the covenant promises of God. Ends with a threat. If you don't do this, you're going to die. Comes back to grace, ask for a sign, I'll prove it to you. Ends with a threat. Okay, if that's the way you want it. Ahaz is in deep trouble here. Because he is clearly rebelling against God as his message is coming through the prophet. So God says, "Is that if that's the way you like it, let's catch up in the notes here real quick. Um, we talked about that. Uh, he will not test the Lord. What does he mean? Why does he refuse? He refuses because his mind is made up. So, so what does God say? That's the way you want it? I'll give you a sign. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now this is sounding familiar, isn't it? Right? Therefore the Lord himself, verse 14, will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey, that's like cottage cheese and honey, at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose, whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Hmm. The plot thickens, doesn't it? Now, let's, let's tear this apart. We'll see how far we get here. 
Notice in verse 13, let's back up a verse. God says, here now, what does it say? Here now, O house of David, um, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? You need to see that he is no longer talking just to Ahaz here. He says, here now, you guys. I'm in the wrong state to say that. Here now, y'all. Right? Or all y'all. I know I know there's like like there's like different dialects depending on what part of Hood County you're from or anyway. Um Uh, okay, say that louder, please. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna settle this right now. We're gonna settle this right now. How many you believe? How many you believe? Now I want you to raise your hand if you're sure here, okay? Because this is really important. How many you believe that you all is always singular? Besides Roger, right, yeah, be proud, brother, because I'm with you. Okay, you're not quite as confident, but okay. How how many you say that? Y'all can, can be singular or plural depending on the context. Okay. How many are all y'all purists for plural? Okay. All right. See, there's diversity here, even in our grammar. So that's very important. How do we get off on that? Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Plural. Here now, all of you, it's plural. And here's the thing. Both Greek and Hebrew have plural forms of you. But it's not, it doesn't always get translated in our English Bibles because we don't have unique forms of you to distinguish singular from plural unless you are a consistent person, Roger. And I appreciate you being confident in that because Roger's consistent in terms of singular and plural. So Roger is a man of precision in flying and language and shoot. No, uh, right. So, so if Roger ever says, y'all... You know he's talking to you. And if he ever says, all y'all, he knows he's talking to you guys. So, um, And just so you know, you guys in Southern California is gender neutral. So you guys can be a bunch of girls just to bring all this in. So, All right. <laughs> no topic is untouched in Grace Bible Church Sunday School class. Here now, back to 13. So, so the point here is isaiah is no longer god through isaiah is no longer just addressing ahaz he's picked up his megaphone now he's addressing the whole nation he's saying it's the whole nation who's in trouble the whole nation is in need of repentance the whole nation needs to see that god is going to give them a sign it's a corporate correction we might call it the lord himself will give you a sign and you know this behold a a virgin will conceive and bear a son and we'll call his name Emmanuel. Now, now there's, there's several things about this that are interesting. Uh, the, the first thing that might stand out to us is that virgins are not typically pregnant. And so, uh, does anybody have a Bible translation that says something other than virgin in this verse? Nobody? Everybody? Okay. So like the RSV and, and uh, so some of the older versions might say maiden or young lady. And uh, part, there's a whole backstory on all that. But what, one of the things we have to figure out is 
does this word mean virgin? It's the word Alma in Hebrew. You may have heard that before in a, in a Christmas sermon somewhere along the way, Alma. And the Bible, the Hebrew does have another word for virgin, but Alma also means virgin. So, so we have to figure out, does that mean what we think it means? And is there any wiggle room or does is it mean like virgin who's pregnant? Uh, bear a son. The other thing we have to figure out is, is what's up with this? This Emmanuel thing. Again, we've, we, we've got... One of the things you see in, Israel, in, in the book of Isaiah is the significance of names. And this is not unique to just Isaiah, but we've already seen significance, right? Isaiah's son, uh, Shear Yashub, right, has a significance. We've seen um, the, the name, that the house of David significance. We've seen here the child that will be born called Emmanuel. Now, I think everybody knows, what does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, so, someone has disarmed me. I have no pens. Oh. Thank you. really has three parts to it. Im, I am, how you say that in Hebrew is im, is the preposition with. Nu is the pronominal suffix us. El is abbreviation for God. So that's how you put that name together. God with us. And when you, you, you the extra letters are because we have to make it uh, a noun that makes sense uh, grammatically in, in Hebrew, okay? So im, with New us, El, short for Elohim, God. So God with us. That's where that name comes from. Okay? Now, uh, let's, uh, let's put some questions up here. Who is the Lord referring to? And as we do that, I'm, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to study this verse, and I want you to tell me what this means okay if you're taking dave and cc's class i know they're just one class into all this but this is a great practical example to apply some of the things you're learning what does virgin mean what does emmanuel mean who is this child contextually who is it being referred to so here's the question does this refer to a child that will be born in isaiah's day or does this refer to a child who's going to be born sometime in the future or both or both Okay, so and with that, let let me give you a couple of tools to put in your toolbox as you go do your mission. Okay, the first the first thing I want you to see is that there are three main ways that Messiah is referenced in the Old Testament. There are three main ways. Okay, so let's just look at those and we'll quit. The first is what we might call a direct reference, and that is the Bible in the Old Testament says I'm talking to you about the Messiah now. So Isaiah 53 not called the Messiah, but called my servant, which is clearly a messianic reference. That is a direct reference, okay? 
direct reference to the Messiah. That's one way. There's a second way the Messiah is referenced in the Old Testament, and that is through what we call allusion or topology. Not allusion like David Copperfield. Allusion like we're alluding to something. We're, we're, we're referencing it in an indirect way. That's allusion. Or topology, which would mean, we'll get into this later on, but a, a, a type or topology means in some way the Messiah is like or similar to some other topic, some other person, some other uh, situation in the Old Testament. So the classic one there is the Passover lamb. 1 Corinthians 5.17, or uh, 5.7, excuse me, where it talks about Christ, our Passover lamb. Jesus is like the Passover lamb. We understand that. That's an illusion or topology. And then the third way is what we call a dual referent meaning a passage in the Old Testament references a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment, meaning a passage says, okay, this is going to happen and here it is right now today, but there's a second referent that it also refers to in the future. Now, the classic example of this is the psalm that we started off reading today. Uh, Psalm 16, where David says, uh, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo to, to decay. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Okay, And we know what David is saying. He is clearly talking about himself in context because he's talking about the security of being with God. Those, those passages must have some significance for David, that God's not going to forget about him when he dies. God's not going to abandon him in his day of trouble, right? But when Peter gets up on the day of Pentecost and preaches in Acts chapter 2 and references Psalm 16, what does he say about Psalm 16? Or, uh, yeah, what does he say about Psalm 16? It refers to the Messiah, doesn't it? In fact, he says, we know that David died and he's rotten in his grave today. Not to be graphic, but that's true. So it can't ultimately finally mean just david in some ways it must reference someone who did not undergo decay following his death and that's jesus okay so you got direct reference an illusion or topology or a dual referent okay and i'm just i'm just putting a couple of tools in your toolbox so your mission is to go back study 714 i want you to come back and tell me which one it is here if any maybe, maybe some of you say it's not a reference to jesus at all okay that's cool let's talk about it And uh, we'll talk about how we we get more into that uh, next time, okay? We're going to be biblical investigators. Messianic, uh, how how we do this? Um, Messianic detective investigators or something like that. We need to come up up with a name for that, I think. So, okay, let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you for time in your word and thank you for uh, just the ways that you make what we are reading here so incredible and detailed. And um, Lord, we want to know your mind. We want to know your intention in these verses. Uh, Obviously, these verses are so um, special to us as we think about Christmas and the Messiah. Uh, We want to understand what they mean more in their context and and how they fit ultimately into your plan. So will you give us grace to do that? And, And in the meantime, might we walk away today remembering who we are and remembering your promises and that we would walk in confident trust, in humble, uh, in, in humble confidence in your word and in your ways. Uh, thank you for your work in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.